0: the men in the church, uh, it's always a refreshing time to go away and be with God and have God address things and dig down into our hearts, reveal things, You know, which which doesn't, it really doesn't necessarily take a, a men's retreat for that to happen. It, it just takes availability for that to happen. And I think if we just changed this to men's availability, we'd hear similar stories. But in our busyness, we don't make ourselves available to the Spirit of God to do these kinds of things in our hearts. But once we do, the next thing we want to do is make our lives available for those things to continue and to grow. And that's why we have a follow-up meeting uh, that Jeff mentioned for breakfast in, here at the, in, towards the end of February in two weeks. But it's also a reason why we need your prayers. So please be praying for the men as many are taking steps that are new and uh, helpful and important in their lives. All right, question for you guys. Um, I don't know how your house functions in this category, but, but how many of you guys live in a house where things get lost a lot? All right. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. There would be two primary categories for lost items that pop up the most in my home. They would be shoes and keys. Now, you'll notice the importance of those two things are those are the things you need when you're running late and trying to get out the door, which just kind of creates a fresh environment for attitudes right before you get in the car to go to church or wherever. You know, there's 18 feet in my house. So the odds that somebody can't find something to cover one of them is, is pretty up there. And uh, keys as well tends to get lost also. Now, here, where's the advice that you give when your children and your spouse come to you and they say, I've lost, blah, blah, blah. What do you say? Where did you put it last? Right. Well, you also, I say, why don't you put it where it goes? That's the, that's the irritated part of me sinfully responding to their need of direction. But you know, it's an important question. It's kind of a stupid question because if they knew where they put it last, they would go and get it. But it's an important question, right? Where did you put it last? All right, the important dynamics there are the fact that you did put it somewhere, and so therefore you are responsible for it, and that it is somewhere by decision, All right? Now, unlike, unlike shoes, which maybe got hijacked by somebody else, or keys got, that got used by somebody else, this morning we're going to talk about hope. I don't think this will stand on my thing here. where my wife go? She can't leave during illustrations, Oh, that doesn't work. All right, one of y'all get to play the part of my wife in just a moment. All right. In the dynamic of hope, at some point during the week, some point in your life, you feel like you've lost hope, right? And it kind of comes and goes. And an important question is, well, where did you put your hope? Because, you know, like, like my little model here hope doesn't have legs it doesn't walk it didn't get up and run away from you it doesn't have a will of its own it goes wherever you put it so you take your hope and you put it somewhere right so in my week hope could have been in a number of places right so here we are this morning and let's just say you know since it's it's sunday morning and you know I'm a pastor uh you know, I, I could, I could, my hope could be in you this morning. My hope could be that you're going to respond well to me. You're going to appreciate something that I've done. You're going to appreciate the ministry of the church. Uh, so I've, I've left my hope with you, right? And so I'm, obviously I'm hoping you're going to play the part well. If you had contacted me earlier in the week, maybe uh, Tuesday. <laughs> at this point, you're thinking I'm hopeless, right? That's understandable. I should have chosen a different staff member to give that to you. But, you know, Tuesday is staff meeting for us, and so it's possible that I would have set my hope in the staff, set them in how they respond. It would have been a foolish thing to do, I realize, but everything I'm going to say about this is foolish. But how they respond to me, how they appreciate my role in their life, my leadership of the church, uh, my influence or care for their families. So I, I could have been dependent upon them for my hope, right? All right, so next day, please give me my hope back. <laughs> all right, maybe, maybe Wednesday. You're just holding it, honey, that's all. You have, to, you have to be here for the whole illustration to understand it, though. Maybe Wednesday I've given my hope to my wife. My hope is is in her in, in how she feels toward me, which probably right now at this moment isn't really good, but uh, how, how she's doing, whether or not she's walking through life, she's happy, she likes the life that I've provided for her, uh, the things that we're able to do together, the way in which we relate, uh, or how she's just doing personally. You know so my, my hope can be vested in her. so then we can move from Wednesday to Maybe Thursday, and, you know, maybe Jack's got a basketball game, and, you know, I grew up, sports was a big deal to me. Now, if you attend, sport, if you attend sporting events that your children are a part of, you learn a lot about parents, don't you? It's very interesting to see how parents respond at sporting events. Um, all right, so Thursday comes around, and, you know, Jack playing well, you know, that's a reflection of my incredible athletic talents, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm wanting him to put me on display well, and I'm feeling the pressure of his performance. And, you know, so there's there's a lot of concern there. And, you know, whether it's that or, you know, actually I could have passed this over to Sophie who, you know, we went Thursday to look at college. You know, so she's about to venture off from high school into college. So, you know, the pressure of, you know, what, what will Sophie do with her life? You know, what will she become? and And, you know. That can be an issue of hope for me because, well, how does that reflect on me, what she does with her life? Will she, will she get a position? Will she pursue something that, that people will be impressed with that will cause me to feel like, hmm, I've done a good job in raising her. I've invested in her in such a way that she's making sound decisions, and, and that, that feels good to me. Now, do you understand? I'm not going to go down the line here. We could be all day with you two. Um <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, all right, question, guys. In this category of, of where, where is our hope, this one issue, this one issue could address multiple problems in our lives. Right, many of us live our lives at a level of sort of trimming the bushes of our problems, Many people do this. Please appreciate what I'm saying here. Many people live their life trimming the bushes of their problems. They never identify what's at the heart of this, they never get to the root of it and dig it out. Right, so let's suppose if you could look at my life and I could say, you know, here, here's, here's a list of problems. You, know, you could have marriage problems in your life, you could have anger problems. In your life. You could have depression problems in your life. You could have control problems in your life. And you could have all of them, right? All those things could be rooted in this. Where do I place my hope? Because wherever I place my hope, I become dependent on you in that category whether it's dependent on my wife, dependent on my children, dependent upon you, dependent upon the staff, whatever, wherever I place my hope, I'm dependent on you delivering for me. So if I'm going to be dependent upon you, guess what I'm going to want to do? I'm going to want to control you because I don't want you to do something that's going to mess my hope up. I don't want to be hopeless. There's almost very few feelings in our lives feel as bad as hopelessness. And so we want to avoid that at all costs. So if I put my hope Anywhere near you, I want to make sure you're going to deliver for me. So I start learning how to play the game, how to fix you, how to worry about fixing you, how to worry about what you're thinking, how, to, how you're responding, how you're not responding. Guess what happens over a course of time when you're invested in other people and trying to control them? How do you know you've lived long enough to know you can't control other people? I mean, you you can try, and you have moments where it seems like it's working, but the sheer weight of you trying to control their lives is a burden that's discouraging, and that's hard to carry. So they don't respond, they don't respond, they don't respond, so then you get frustrated, and your frustration turns to anger. Your anger turns to harsh words, and then you show up for marriage counseling. Right? And what do you discuss? Communication. We just don't communicate well. You know, I say this, and then she says that. Great. Okay, here's a a workbook on how to communicate better. We need that. That's important. But did you ever get past trimming the bushes? Did you ever get down to the level of what's behind the anger, the impatience, the frustration? Are you you trying to control this person? Well, Why are you trying to control them? Because I'm dependent upon them to give me hope. I've put my hope in them. I hate my job. There's so much pressure, blah, blah, blah. Why? Because I put my hope in my job. Okay, well, the Bible verse that we're going to talk about today is very, very helpful from 1 Peter in this regard. But it's very important that we understand something. Your hope doesn't have legs, doesn't have a will of its own. So if you've misplaced your hope, it is wherever you left it last. It's where you put it. All right, so let's open up to First Peter. See, my hope will stay up here. I don't think it will. Can you see my hope? You can't. We cannot be hopeless here. This is a risk. Stay. All right. I'll try and be careful. First Peter, chapter one. Verse 13, So says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to start with hope, and in this passage, we're going to end with hope. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Are in God, right? Father, help us today. Lord, you are you are interested in and concerned about our hope. Well, this this book is written to help us to always have hope. Lord, how easy it is for us to misplace it. Lord, daily there are temptations for something else. To be a candidate for our hope. Lord, this morning, help us to see a principle that daily would serve us and help us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, this is where we start. Verse 13. Preparing your minds for action. Right now, you guys remember back when you took math? you remember back that far, there was a thing called order of operations. I kind of told you in a math equation, you did the parentheses, and you did the multiplication, right? There's a little order there. Well, in the Christian life, there's an order. It's like you just don't start randomly anywhere. There's an order. And it seems from Scripture, I think it's clear to say, that when, when the life of a Christian is going to go pouring forth from our lives, it's going to be conducted a certain way. The order of operations is the mind is first. The first thing that happens is in our minds. Before our lives become actions, they are carried out mentally first, and then they turn into actions in the mind. Listen to Richard Mayhew. He says, Proverbs 27:19 establishes a basic axiom relating to the individual character and mind of a human being. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. A person who thinks righteously will tend to act righteously, and conversely, a person who thinks sinfully will act sinfully as a habit. The same principle is generally recognized in the cultural proverb. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Right, now some of us have joined the program already in progress, so we're just dealing with the characters and the habits now. But what we may not have paid attention to is how did those character and habits begin? Well, they began back here... As thought, there was some thinking that went on. And from that thinking came actions. Now, when we we look at the the fact that our minds, the brain part, the emotion dynamic, the personality aspects, our minds are behind the actions of our lives, the attitudes of our lives. The things that are going on in our life right now were the product of, of past thoughts in our minds. Now, all of us come to this game with our minds in a certain condition. We are are bent, if you will, by the fall. And I sometimes have alignment issues. I've had to have a couple of cars align. You guys have problems with your alignment in your car? It eats your tires up, right? Well, you go in and they they bend some stuff. Sometimes you have to bend the frame uh, to to get things to drive straight. Well, you know, when the fall happened, when sin came into humanity, you and I, our, our minds got bent by that. There's an effect upon us. And so our cars, they sort of want to pull in one direction. If you let go of the wheel, it it wants to go that way. Our minds want to go a certain way as a result of the fall. Now, not everybody's has exactly the same characteristics to it, which is important. It's important for you to realize that. It's important in how you deal with others to realize that your bent is different than somebody else's. So when you let go of the wheel, your life will end up in a certain ditch of sin. And somebody else's may never end up in that ditch. They'll end up in that ditch over there. Just realize everybody's got a ditch, though. When you learn that, it'll humble you a little bit, hopefully a little bit. Right? Here are quick factors that go into your bent. Genetic factors. Uh, You know, there's an explosion in the psychological world in the last 10 years to find everything in man to be genetically oriented. The aspects of human behavior uh, it used to be, if you guys remember growing up, uh, a lot of it was environmental. It was the environment you grew up in. So everything from potty training to how you were influenced by other factors was the environmental dimensions that turned you into who you are. Now, I will say this, those are true factors. Are they absolute determining factors? I don't think so, but they are factors of influence. Well, today the, the, the hot button is genetics. It's, it's looking at the genetic pool that's in us that makes us want to be ambitious in this category and shy in this category and go after this and not do that. And we have certain appetites, bents, if you will, desires that we're going to pursue and some that we're going to avoid. So there's there's dimensions genetically that are a part of who you are. Uh, the, the great thing is, when I when I look at this Bible, this is gonna be very important for us today. God who created us is the God of genetics. He is the one who ordained and used genetics to create us. Genes come from God. So when man comes along, the 21st century, and finally, because he's dull and slow, finally figures out that genes are involved. Let's not do this. Let's not come to the Bible and act like somebody needs to tell the Bible that. What a discovery we've made. Quick, someone run to that, you know, that ignorant old book and tell it that genes are involved. Listen, I have, I have no argument with the idea that there are certain genetic dynamics in me that make certain sins more accessible to me than they are to you maybe. And you have some that make certain sins more accessible to you. See, now, I can read this Bible in one of two ways. I can read it knowing that the God who created everything knew that when he said this. Or I can read it as though he didn't know that, and boy, he's got some revision work to do here. He's talking like this stuff's possible for everyone. If he only knew genetics, he would know we are not genetically all the same. Uh, you know, when he said, thou shalt not murder, did, I mean, did he know that you were going to have an anger problem? Did he just, name did he know that was going to be genetic? Oh, wow, well, probably not. He knew. And he still said, you, with the anger problem, don't murder. All right, is everybody good on that? All right, can I just tell you, in the world in which you live, this, this argument is upside down in categories because we're all, all good with the commands of God in some categories. But what about if, what about things like homosexuality? What if that's genetic? Well, shouldn't, this, this is the thinking here. Well, then if it's genetic, shouldn't that person be true to their genes? How many of you know that heterosexuality might be genetic? How many of you know that heterosexuals might have temptations and desires outside of one spouse for life? Might, what do you think, possible? Let's just just imagine for a moment that that could happen. Should we tell that person you should be true to your genes? Or should we tell that person you shall not commit adultery? That God commands you not to fornicate. But genetically, me man, you woman. Genetically. So my inclination is what? Well, it could be to sin, that's what it could be. And yet the Bible knew that beforehand, and it speaks to me. All right, how many of you guys, listen, this is a humbling moment. How many of you guys have some sort of career in stealing things? Come on, humble yourselves for a second. You've had a career in stealing things. Come on. All right, some of you are just liars. How many of y'all need to join the Liars Club right now? <laughs> Thank you. I don't know, genetically, was I just a little bit wired to break into cars and steal things when I was a teenager? Was I just genetically disposed to that? Not everybody did it, but I did. It's thrilling. But then the Bible comes along and says, thou shalt not steal. Now, would the Bible have adjusted that if it had just known genetically I was a little different than you? Or am I responsible to respond to what the Bible says even though I might a little bit more of a kleptomaniac than you are. This is is important because uh, when it comes to appreciating what what this Bible verse is going to say next, all of us need to be in the crosshairs of it because this is where the the verse goes. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he was has called you is holy, you be holy also. Now listen to what the Bible sounds like right here. Do you hear it? It's acting like no matter what your former ignorance was, no matter what flavor it was, it's acting like there's a reason for you to be completely different. This is good news if the Bible's well-informed. I mean, is it right for God to set an expectation that given the varieties of past that many of us have had, the former things, that we could live a new life, that we could actually be characterized by holiness rather than by our former sinfulness? Isn't that what this verse sounds like? Now, it does sound that way, doesn't it? It's offering me something that might be a challenge. J.B. Phillips translates verse 14. He says, don't let your character... Be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. That's his translation of that. Wayne Grudem says, The fact that Peter could give such a command implies that he knew that such desires still remain and have some power in the hearts of true Christians. I I appreciate it. I think that's fair. I think he's not closing his eyes to the realities that that this this isn't necessarily going to be easy. Yet he also implies that he agreed with Paul that the Holy Spirit's regenerating work has broken the ruling, dominating force of those desires and that it is possible for Christians to have a significant measure of victory over them. So let me go from Peter to Paul here. Both in Peter and in Paul, you have what I would call a a break-free theology. And then the Bible presents this idea that for a Christian, there's something like breaking free. It's like a, a line of demarcation. It's like once this controlled me, it characterized me, it, it was my middle name. It's what I was known for. But, but then there came a moment of demarcation where something so significant happened in my life spiritually that that no longer is true to say about me that way. It's a break free theology. It's a biblical view. Romans 12 in your outline there. Paul says this. This is Paul's break-free theology, just like Peter's. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I like some of the other translations that put that therefore first because it makes you stop and think, okay, we're gathering 11 chapters of doctrine into this therefore. 11 chapters, most of them weighted down with indicative statements of what God has done 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 is what. Done, of what this is this is like a freight train going through the countryside at this moment. When Paul stops and says, "Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world." But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Because of all that God has done, two things. Here's the action. Usually, after therefore, it's a collection of indicative impact into imperative actions. So, Paul turns the corner and he says two things here one, present your bodies to God and do not be conformed to this world. Now, that's very similar to what Peter says. As a result of what God has done, present your bodies, which it means I can. If it's telling me to do it, it means I can. And do not be conformed to this world. If it's telling me to do that, it means I can. No matter what my background has been, no matter how long the track record, no matter what my parents were like, no matter what my genetic pool was like, this Bible's invading my life with a freight train of truth in this moment. And in 1 Peter, verse 14 and 18, you hear these words, formal, former ignorance. And in verse 18, you hear, Feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Right? And immediately that launches me into Paul's theology. Most people would, would think that Peter was influenced by Paul's writing. He admits that in, in some points. So I, I think there is some learning that, that Peter has received through Paul. And so there's insight here that he's reinforcing as well as he mentions former ignorance and feudal ways. Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Where the same language is used. Ephesians 4 verse 17. It's another one of those moments where something's been said, and now it's an application moment for Paul. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Right? No longer. Now, he's going to give reasons why, but let me just frame all these reasons for a second. What Paul's about to do is he's about to explain the life of somebody who's not in Christ. He's about to show you the characteristics of what characterizes their life. That those characteristics are what goes on in the mental components, the emotional dynamics, the character issues that all go into making somebody's mind up to produce the actions of life. What Paul's about to say is, let me tell you what you're not anymore. All right. Well, let's learn what we're not anymore. He says, "No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of." Their minds, right? The mind of somebody who doesn't belong to Christ, has not been regenerated, is not a child of God, is a futile mind, right? A a futile mind to me is, is a mind that's out of touch with the ultimate things, out of touch with ultimate purpose so that everything you do is futile. I mean, if you're not living your life for its ultimate purpose, well, then you're living a life of futility. And the Bible says that those who apart from Christ... Their minds are futile. They do not live for an ultimate purpose. That's who you used to be, but guess what? It's not who you are now. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, right? If we look through those dynamics, darkened in their understanding, God is the light of the world. Apart from God's light, you don't see things spiritually. None of us do. So we we walk through life with this darkened spiritual dynamic in us, confused, not sure where things go, very short-sighted that we we don't see down the road. What does this decision lead to? What does the decision I'm making right now bring about later on in my life? Well, the person apart from Christ doesn't see the Spirit. So they are darkened. So they make decisions out of a darkened mind, alienated from the life of God. If if I'm apart from the life of God, and he said that earlier in Ephesians 2.12, he told him, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant's of promise, having listen, having no hope and without God in this world. See if you're alienated from the life of God, isn't everything about the life and glory of God? I mean, when you read the Bible, not for too long, you find out a God who created everything did so with an agenda, with a purpose. He did it for a reason. That reason is that all things exist for the glory of God. Well, if you're alienated from that thought, well, then you got to come up with other reasons for why everything exists. You got to redefine the purpose for everything. All right, so what's your purpose for your life? What's your purpose for money? What's your purpose for your marriage? See, now, when God stops being the purpose something else will take over as God, right? So if God's not the center of everything that we are, then guess who is the center of everything we are? We are. So now I live my life trying to get everyone's existence to somehow validate and participate in my existence. So what's the purpose for marriage? Well, it's the purpose of marriage is to make me happy. Do you have any idea how many Christians come to us explaining to us why... God wants them out of the marriage because God would not want me to be unhappy. Okay, listen, going through marriage problems is not an easy ride. So I don't say that unsympathetically. But that position is, is biblically uninformed. It's, that's a thought that's alienated from the life of God. The God who created everything did so that all things might exist for his glory. So when I try to figure out why does, why does my marriage exist? Well, it exists for the glory of God. Now I'm in a position to figure out what to do with it. If I don't have that insight and I start thinking, well, marriage exists for me. It exists for me to be happy. Well, when I hit issues that aren't making me happy, I can start redefine in the future of our relationship and where that's gonna go and where do I think I wanna let this thing go and how much longer do I wanna deal with this in my life, right? This is, this is the effect of being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them an ignorance that's birthed out of a stubborn, hard heart. Heart gets hard, I want what I want. An unresponsive, stubborn, won't humble itself. Look in verse 19. They have become, they, they, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. All right? This is the again, this is the mind of one who doesn't belong to Christ. Calloused, right? Some of you guys know what callouses are. Sometimes I shake you guys' hands, I think. What do you do all week long? <laughs> you got hands that are like rock hard, right? I don't. I have, I have to sit down at the men's retreat. If you felt my hands, I would have to sit down. Uh, there's very little calluses here, and I don't know where that even comes from. But I, I, I can remember, you know, doing work and stuff with the hands, and I remember playing the guitar when I was younger, and you could develop, you guys who are guitar players, you know, you can develop some serious calluses on the ends of your fingers to where you don't feel anything anymore. You can just walk up, grab, put cigarettes out with it. Psst. We used to do that, you know, thought that was cool. Psst. Uh, Because, you know, what are you doing? What's happened to this thing? Well, at one point, that was painful. But you stopped responding to the pain over and over and over again. And your body built up a resistance to it because it didn't want to feel the pain anymore either. So it became calloused. That's That's the condition of the heart of someone apart from Christ. Calloused. Unresponsive. And actually worse than that, given to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When you don't find your satisfaction in God, you become greedy to find it everywhere else. So you become obsessive. You act on impulses. You wrap yourselves in enslaving behaviors because there's something in you that wants to be satisfied. Now, Here's the deal. All of that stuff is about to run into a big giant but. Verse 20. But... There's a new self now, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All the descriptions that we just went through have come to a point, a line, a moment of demarcation to where no longer you. That's no longer a description of you. You no longer are alienated from God. You no longer are in darkness. Your mind is no longer in that condition. There's a huge contrast here. Something new has happened in your life. Now, I think we need some greater expectations as to what that means for us. I, I don't find that we're shocked enough by our own behavior. I don't know what it is. What is it? Just a, it's like being in a bad class in college, you know. Everybody starts getting 40s and 50s. The guy starts curving it, you know. Everybody just keeps getting 40s and 50s. He curves it. You start thinking 60 is a good grade. <laughs> Everybody else is getting 40s and 50s. I got a 60. <laughs> I, mean, I wonder in our own lives, do we have a big enough appreciation for what happened to us when we became born again by God and became new creations? Does our conduct shock us anymore? shock us in the sense of, how is this going on in me? Or is it just, what's well, it's going on in everybody else, you know. <laughs> I checked Facebook, I've seen worse. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I'm all right. I don't know, maybe, maybe too much publicity has dumbed us down. I think we should have greater expectations. I think the Bible sounds like it's got great expectations for us. Listen to this from Richard Mayhew. It says, as a result of salvation, the mind of a newly redeemed person knows and comprehends the glory of God. Right? We we know that all things exist for the glory of God because God has made that known to us. We're no longer darkened to that, alienated from that thought. Whereas before, it was blinded by Satan. Before it was. It's not now. If you're a child of God, you are not blinded by Satan to see that. This person now possesses the helmet of salvation to protect the mind against the schemes of, of Satan, rather than being left vulnerable against him as before salvation. Thoughts came, detracted us, deceived us. We had no helmet. I have a helmet now. I do have a helmet now. It protects my thinking. This new person from 2 Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This new person now has a knowledge of God and his will that previously he or she did not possess. we, We are not the same anymore. Now, it's kind of weird to stand up and tell people, you are not the same anymore. It's like, well, if I'm not the same anymore, why do you need to tell me that? Well, because the Bible had to tell us that. So apparently we're capable of being different and not understanding that we're different. Which I think is a huge issue, which is why the Bible is telling us this today. We're looking your outline there. First Peter 1.18 joins the Ephesian chorus of compelling us to a life that has abandoned these former dynamics. Right? What does that verse say? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, you were ransomed from, and the price of that ransom was the precious blood of Christ. So involved in this ransom, because this word ransom is not just, you know, responding to some note and paying some bad dudes. Ransom. There is a dynamic in that. But it's, it's an out of word. You were ransomed out of. You were taken out of that. That futile old way, you were taken out of that by the precious blood of Christ. Now listen, it took that for me to get out but if the precious blood of Christ has taken me out, what does that say to me about my freedom from it? It should raise my expectations. I'm putting your outline there. Note here that the high price is not merely associated with our forgiveness in our future, but also present life experience. Right? A lot of us think about the blood of Christ. We think it's forgiving us, and one day, We're going to stand before God, and in that moment of judgment, he's going to look upon me, and he's going to see the blood of Christ, right? We we apply the blood that way to our lives, which is absolutely essential and right. But that is not the only application. In this moment, the application of the blood of Christ is not about the future. It's about right now. It's about the conduct of a believer. That's what Peter's talking about. He's transferring this huge event that's been done on our behalf into the right now, present lifestyle of a believer. Wayne Grudem says, the New Testament authors also attribute to it, the blood of Christ, several other effects. By the blood of Christ, our consciences are cleansed. How big is that? Can you go with me here for a second? Your conscience is cleansed. Why are you having to tell me that? Because the Bible's having to tell us things that are true. Because some of us are living like our past is controlling us. Oh, Lord, to get a deeper revelation that my conscience is cleansed from that past. We gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. We are progressively cleansed from more and more sin. Please go back and look these verses up and meditate on them. That's why we give you notes. So at some point in the week, you're gonna sit down with those notes and you're gonna go back and say, you know what, that one quote with those, I need to go back and sit in that for a while. Listen to this last one. And we are rescued out of a sinful way of life. Ransomed from the feudal ways, the former ways, is a, it's a word that demonstrates that we're called out of it. We have been bought out of it. The price that was paid was sufficient to bring us out of the former ways of our lives. If you, if you looked in these, these passages here, Ephesians, you, you, would, you would find, as well as in 1 Peter, you would find what I would call invading indicatives. Right, here you have the conduct of people, problems going on, but into the lifestyle of a believer has come these invading indicatives, like, like an army, these indicatives come, and they just, they just lay waste the landscape with the power of what they're saying. Right, over and against all these things that characterize them, we, we read about an, an overwhelming army that comes and says, you are a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's why that big but is there, right? Don't you remember the big but in this passage. That's why it's there. Because what God has done is bigger, stronger, more important, more effective, more lasting than whatever has characterized us, our whole life, the former things. When we get to, go back to 1 Peter here. When we get to 1 Peter, by the time we get to this therefore, and we're told prepare your minds because your mind's going to give birth to actions, set your hope, that's critical, and now conduct yourselves in a holy manner. How do we get there? What's this therefore? Well, the therefore has to do with the indicatives that came before it, right? Back in verse 1. Peter is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, you are elect according to a plan. God had planned this from the foundations of the world. What did he plan? That you'd be elect, you'd belong to him, you'd be a special people to him, that he would live and relate to you in a different way than the rest of the world. That in sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That, that's, that's the plan that was known from the foundations of the world. So does this inform me that my conduct that that Peter's about to address might be able to be different? I, I might be able to break free. I might be able to be different than, than all the rest of my gene pool family. Right? I mean, I got I got drunks in my family as far back as my generations can go. I do, on both sides of my family. My dad can tell horror stories about his dad and relatives. You know, I don't know how many times I heard the story growing up. My dad, 12 years old, having to go out and get a job delivering newspapers. So they'd have anything to eat in the house because dad drank and gambled everything away. My mom's got a whole other set of stories. And right, so here I stand, got a great gene pool. <laughs> do, I, do I have any hope that, that maybe, maybe something could be different for me? Well, you know, before I ever kind of existed, there was a plan from the foundation of the world that included God getting involved in my life in a powerful way. In my past, alcohol was involved, not not to me so much personally, but in my genetic pool, in a powerful way. Why why is it that we stare at that as though that is so powerful when we look back at these verses in 1 Peter, where the God of glory stood at the foundations of the world and foresaw me being his elect child, where he would be involved? He would be involved in an amazing way. He he would make me his own, so therefore he would treasure me and, and be involved as though I was a precious possession to him. That's what that elect word carries with it. He would be involved and he would put the Holy Spirit in my life, the sanctification that's in that verse earlier. For obedience, part of God's plan, for ordained from the foundation of the world was for me to be obedient to him. God planned that in advance. And knowing that sin would be a terrible corrupter of my life, the cleansing of my life with the blood of Christ. This is all pre-planned. And you read a little bit further, and you get verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Born again? What is that about? I I don't have time to chase that one, but let me just give you a quick quote here. You guys will remember reading this book. It's it's worth reading again. But Finally Alive by John Piper. He says, what happens in the new birth? One, what happens in the new birth is not getting new religion, but getting new life. Listen, for some of us, if we really caught that, it would revolutionize us. Sometimes we just think that, you know, we're just going to adjust our religious views, adjust our religious beliefs. We went to this church, all these, and now we're going to go to this church. Well, that's fine. Your car parks at a different location, and you hear some things. Those things alone might help you. But that is not what being born again is. Being born again is getting a new life inside of me. That's very different. Two, what happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. Three, what happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new nature. A nature that is really new and is being formed by the indwelling spirit of God. Right? When indicatives come to us, guys, they invade our lives. They come in armed and they wipe out the landscape. I don't know what impresses you that has that kind of power. But there's an invasion of the indicatives of God into our lives that should cause us to abound in expectations about what might God do in us as believers. Right, well, where, where this verse goes, back in First Peter here. Yep, sorry. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right, listen, no matter what your reputation is, and some of us got reputations, no matter what slows you up, creates your problems in life, if you're a child of God, holiness is the most befitting thing that should describe you. Do you get that from reading some of this? Because the way in which Peter and Paul treat former issues, they don't treat it like, eh, yeah, well, you know, every once in a while this little holiness pops out of the former things. They don't treat it that way. You're, you are a new creation being made in the likeness and image of Christ. Therefore, what's befitting to God is befitting to you. You shall be holy for I am holy. It's not just a command like I expect out of you. Although God does expect it. It's more than that. It's what characterizes him. And since so much of God is vested in us, he expects that it would characterize us. We should be shocked when it does not. Not when it does. How many of us get blown away? It's like, yeah, read my Bible for a whole week. (laughs) Yeah. Can you believe that? (laughs) Like we're amazed. We did something righteous. What, What? Oh, having to restrain myself. Right now there's a few of you who don't like me saying weird stuff that are going through my head right now. What is wrong with us? That we're more shocked when we act holy than we are when we're characterized by the former things. Doesn't it sound like it should be the other way around in these verses? Peter sounds like he expects big stuff, right? Just rapid fire around here. If you looked at Ephesians, Peter uses this word conduct, the conduct of a Christian's life. Paul is going to explain conduct. Peter uses the word conduct eight times in just two little letters. It's only used 13 times in the whole New Testament. So Peter's obviously concerned about our conduct. Paul, after he just explains what you used to be was all these terrible things in your mind, but now you're a new creation in Christ, so there's a new day that's come, and then he starts taking the wrecking ball to life. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Be angry, but do not sin. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good to building up as fits the occasion. May give grace to those who hear. I mean, do you hear the, the common lifestyle dynamics? Paul says, as a result of you not being who you once were and those former things now having met something greater than them and this great, powerful work now of you being conformed to the image of Christ taking place, lo- look at what starts to come under the wrecking ball of the power of God. Right? Daily living stuff. Right. I mean, there's, there's communication in here. There's some, some real sinful, habitual things that get mentioned, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or whose covetousness has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Verse 7, Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, which made sense for you to partake in that. Because not only did you live in darkness, but you were darkness. So all the sinful, aberrant behavior, it made sense for you to do that. It doesn't make sense anymore. Because you are not darkness anymore. And that's how he sounds right here. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Okay, there is a high expectation here. Do you hear the high expectation of the Bible? In a very low expectation world? All right, let me just read this to you. I'm, I'm about to skate on thin ice. Can everybody just give me permission to skate on your thin ice? Right, we, come, we come to church not to just hear the same stuff. and Not to just stay in our same positions. We come for the word of God to do an overhaul. All right, so for some of us right now, you didn't invite this, but it's going into your life, probably going to feel awkward for a few moments. So there's tests that you go get from the doctor that feel awkward, don't they? Right? They're good tests. At least that's what they tell us. But this is is a good thing. And I wrote this thought out. In our much-psychologized world. We must be careful that we don't make every normal sin pattern of humanity appear to be somehow beyond the reach of the language of the Bible. The Bible, right? Which is informed, inspired by the God who created the human soul. See, here's what you won't find in the Bible. You won't find the word addictions. You won't find the word disorders. You won't find the word compulsions. And you won't find the word dysfunctions. So therefore, I guess we can conclude that the Bible is neutral and silent on such issues. So should you have any of those, should you have an addiction or a compulsion or a dysfunction, should you have any of those in your life, then you will have to go somewhere else beside the Bible. Really? Really? You mean some of the most destructive forces in our lives today. The Bible goes blank on them for real. Like, like this is, well, this is, this is for the kindergarten lifestyle. You know, it's how to get along, how to speak to others on the playground. It's not dealing with the serious issues. We're going to have to let somebody else deal with the serious issues. Really, is that what really happened? Or or do we just rename everything? Is there anything new under the sun? Right, you want to go back and visit Adam's family? Not the Adam's family, but Adam and Eve's family. <laughs> <laughs> go back and visit those guys. Don't you think the word dysfunction works there? I'm assuming there was a little bit of addictive, disorderly behavior going on when God decided to flood the whole world and destroy everything. I'm assuming there were some issues there. Right? The Bible's not silent on these things. The Bible is speaking to these things. Let's just call them the right things and see what the Bible has to say about them. Now, I know I'm skating into people's worlds. Let me ask you to do this. Please don't do this with what I'm saying this morning. Because this is why I'm going to tell you this. I say stuff like this. I'm not alone. There's other guilty parties sitting in the front row. um, That cause people, when they bump into an issue, that they live in the world, and so they go to get help. They're going to get help. They need help. And they go to get help, and the advice that they get usually will involve medication. So they will go, and they will seek out medication. And then they remember a message like this. And they marry those two thoughts together, and they say, okay, well, if I'm going to go the medication route, I certainly can't talk to the church about this. And so they just sort of disconnect themselves from the church. They don't get counsel. They don't get help. So they sort of shut off the spiritual component of their world. Because, yeah, you might have doctors who write your prescriptions, but you do realize that the people who stand in this pulpit are responsible for your souls, Now, I know we don't charge like your doctor does, but your doctor's working on something that's going to end up in a box, and there's nothing he can do about it. You know what we're working on right now this morning? The thing that's going to last forever. Your soul goes on forever. So when you bump into these issues, please don't don't create this issue. Listen, if, you, if you've gone the medication route, we're not going to attack you. We, we, wouldn't even, we wouldn't even say that there aren't situations where medication probably is the best thing for you to do. That might be a wise choice on your part. So please don't go down the road that the church is, is anti-psychology, it's anti-medication. We're not. That would not be true. There'd be many situations where we don't necessarily know practically what's the best step for you right now. You feel led to do that. We're going to walk alongside of you. And say, hey, if you're feeling led to do that, then we're going to do everything we can to walk with you in this moment. Okay, but I don't know what the stats are, but I would dare say most of us in this room don't need to be medicated. Now, I know you're hearing differently from the world. From the world, everybody needs to be medicated. If you mention that you've got an emotional tangent going on in your life, someone will try and medicate you. But doesn't the Bible talk about any of this stuff? I mean, when the God who created you stands up and says, do not be anxious. Or does that mean you should never medicate anxiety? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm also saying it's not the first thing you should do either. You, you should seek to respond to the rich truth of a God who says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll wear, your tomorrow, your hope, etc." Seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness and all these other things. At some point, i got to do something with that verse besides ignore it. Right? I mean, look at these things. Sexual immorality must not even be named among you. Does does God know anything about sexual addictions? Does he know what a big deal that is? He does. He does. And he can still say exactly what he said. Because there's a big but in this passage. Do not get drunk with wine. Listen, I'm glad. You know, guys here who have got addiction problems, do something. Do something to arrest that issue. But when I read the Bible, guys... I don't find an invitation to a meeting that for the rest of my life, I'm going to introduce myself as an alcoholic. Right. I'm sorry, I don't. I find a Bible who's not uninformed. There were drunks back in this day. There were people who got drunk every day. There were people who wrecked their lives every day drinking. That's not new to us. And the Bible jumps right in that moment and says, do not be drunk with wine. Hey, dude, but you don't know my past. Well, this is majoring in your future. It's talking about your past like it really is your past. It's talking about it like it's a feudal and former way. But when you met the new creation and the power of God and God began to work in your life and he had plans for you from the foundations of the world and he went to work to perform those things and his favor was upon you so that you could be obedient and all your failures could be washed continually by the blood of Christ, God installed a new day. Somebody believe it. Instead of sitting down all the time and saying what I used to be, I still am. Listen, I mean, I'm glad for people to get help in whatever category. You know, get some help. But listen, there's some really rich help right here in the Word of God. It may not be popular, it may not be familiar, but it's rich. Let me see if I can get us to a close here. Here, look at this. I wrote this out in your outline as well. The great tragedy of today's Christianity is we have very loud and impressive life experiences and a very quiet and unimpressive Bible. If I sit down with you in a counseling moment, I am blowing the trumpet as loud as I can about my life, my experiences, what what I've been doing, how long I've been doing it, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with me. I'm impressed with how big of a hole I can dig and how deep I can get in it. And then we come to the Bible. You now, come on, honestly, even if we're thinking about the Bible and meditating on it, and the Bible's like a whisper. It's a little wimpy little book. Can you hear it? It's quiet. Does it even say anything about my situation? My situation's been going on for 12 years, and it's this, and it's that, and it's this, and it's that. And we're impressed. We're so impressed. Now, listen, just be honest here. Just in the little bit that we've looked at, what's the Bible impressed with? It doesn't seem to be impressed with our past. It doesn't seem to stand in the futile formal ways and be intimidated by it. It seems to say, no, holiness now suits you, child of God for what God has done is so much bigger and stronger and effective than what you've ever done and what your sin has ever done in your life. Let me just address this last thought. Hope and the issues of the mind. Let's go back to where we started. How much mental anguish and struggle is the direct result of misdirected hope? Right? Our our minds are in turmoil because we have misdirected our hope. We've, we've put them in places like people. We hope that people will accept us. They will appreciate us. They will validate us. They will make our lives feel important or significant. Listen, the moment we have deputized people to do that, okay, can I, I'll go ahead and use a modern buzzword, you have just installed and created the industry called codependency. Well, here's how the Bible goes. Here's my definition of codependency. Maybe somebody will write this into a codependent journal somewhere. Hitching our hope to another human being's life, decisions, and actions. That's what codependency is. It's when you take your life purchased by the precious blood of Christ, and rather than hitching it to him, you take and you hitch it to another human being with their life choices, their practices, their issues, their waywardness, their struggles, and your hope now is going to be based on wherever they take you. All right? can, can you start now to figure out why, why am I having such problems with fear and anxiety? Well, because you don't like the way that dude drives and, and you've been following him long enough to know it's just a matter of time until he's going to bury us in another problem again. How are you going to live free from fear and anxiety? Because your hope is that he's going to do the right thing. There's a bunch of marriages that people walk around in miserable, miserable because their hope has been set in a person, that that person's going to be to them what they need them to be to them so that I can have hope in my life. Well, the Bible never called on us to do that. Right? Fear and anxiety will then translate into manipulation and control. Right? You, you're going to make sure you get that sucker here to church, right? I mean, you've got to do something to get him here. So, I mean, what's your technique? What do you use? you shame him? Embarrass him? Insult him? You sure got time to go on Saturday and do blah, blah, blah. I mean, what, what's all that about, really? It's not just about, well, I just want my husband to be in church. Is that all it is? That'd be great. But the fear and the anxiety and the control... That's going along with it, says otherwise. It says your hope is in that man living righteously. Hey, we should want for righteousness in people's lives, but do not hitch your hope to them. Right, where'd this first start? Set your hope fully in the grace to be revealed in Christ. I'm about to set my hope in the wrong place. And I can do something with that. We want to keep away the the anger and bitterness issues that come as we misplace our hope. Listen, I remember years ago, Matt, go ahead and come back up. I remember years ago, anger and bitterness in a marriage was reserved into the categories of of abusive situations where, where someone had become abusive. You know what, today, today, if you're just an average spouse, you could be the grounds of somebody being angry and bitter at you. Because the stakes are much higher. We, we want this in our marriage here. And you, you're just average. You don't take me there. You don't do that for me. It's, that sounds like misplaced hope. That's what that is. How do we redirect our hope? Well, this verse begins in 1 Peter, highlighting the issue of hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And then it concludes with faith and hope. So here I wrote this out to kind of catch the flow of it in your outline. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has ransomed us. His blood was the ransom price. He was foreknown. He was made manifest. We are believers through him. God raised him and gave him glory. So that, this is how the verse ends, your faith and hope are in God. If I were to just make a list of the, addictions and habits and struggles that you're having. And I'll tell you something outlandish. That if your hope is set in God, by the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the work of God in your life, you can experience freedom. Not not necessarily with no struggle, but freedom. And you're thinking, dude, you, you don't know my situation. You don't know how this feels. All right, what sounds crazier? That God could do that in you or that he could raise somebody from the dead? I mean, be honest. What sounds sounds more difficult to do? Because featured in this passage is the fact that God raised him from the dead. The one who took the wrath of God. Listen, if there's ever a moment of opposition and difficulty, it was when the wrath of God was laid on the Son of God. And he yielded up his life. And God turns around and says, here, you want to hear something crazy? (laughs) I raised him from the dead. Now turn me loose in your life and watch what I do. Your situation is not a problem for God. It may feel like a problem for us. But what needs to happen this morning is my faith and my hope need to get off of me and my track record and my former things and get on a God who's being described in these passages. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for an adjustment in our expectations. Lord, thank you for the reality that holiness fits us. Everyone here who belongs to Christ... Holiness fits us because you are in us. Lord, there are some here this morning who who need, they need to stand on that line of demarcation. Lord, it needs to be real. It needs to be thick and broad and bright. Lord, they need to go back and visit it. Maybe they've moved on from their conversion and, and moved on without seeing all these rich truths but Lord this morning I I, I ask for you to meet with us and meet with some here who have misplaced their hope unholy lives have been powerful and intimidating and controlling and discouraging frustrating Lord, this morning you are inviting us to set our hope fully in the grace revealed in Christ. Oh God, this morning help us, help us, Lord, to do exactly that.